Would you bow with me and pray as we continue to seek the face of our God this morning? Father, we've sung this morning of your glory and your worth. You deserve our highest praise and more than we can offer. You've given us yourself in the person of your son, purchasing life and forgiveness and freedom and joy. And Lord, our desire this morning is to offer ourselves before you, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in view of your unimaginable mercy that you've demonstrated towards us. So God, give us soft hearts. Help us to be teachable, pliable in your hands. And we ask that as your word is proclaimed this morning that you would bring about um, a godly fear and a righteous hatred of sin and a Christ-centered and Christ-exalting desire to live lives that are holy and honoring to you. I pray that your gospel would be clear today, that all who are gathered here would understand what it means that your son died and rose again for sinners like us. So fix our eyes on you, open our hearts to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, We sent out an email earlier this week to the parents. If you're planning to have your kids participate in a our sort of one-off children's class today, you can go ahead and dismiss those kids now. We're going to be dealing with the seventh commandment this morning in the Ten Commandments, and we will be talking about what God's Word talks about, so we want to make that option available for some of the younger kids who may not be ready for some of this, but we do believe here that God's Word is true, it is good, and I think it wise to be proactive rather than reactive when it comes to initiating these conversations with children. So even for the parents whose kids are going out, we would encourage you to talk to your children about the things we're going to address today. But I'd like to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 20. And our text this morning is going to be verse 14. Amidst this sort of rapid bullet point staccato section of the Ten Commandments, we find in the Hebrew text two words, which comes to us in English as this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. The cult of self is the religion of our day. That is the religion of our society. And sex is the preeminent act of worship in this false religion, which means that commandments like this are explosive and offensive and counterintuitive for our culture. Today, sex is thought of in terms of a human right. I mean, think about it. That's why to prohibit someone or try to discourage someone from having sex with whom or how they want, that's thought to be the ultimate blasphemy. But the Ten Commandments remind us that humanity is not on the throne. We don't get to make the rules The preamble to God's law reminds us who is speaking here. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the creator and our savior. He is God and his law tells us what is true and what is right and what is good. My goal today is that we would recognize this powerful truth, that faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. And to help us sort of see how this works itself out and to help us live faithfully, I'd like us to consider two things today. We'll sort of split this message into two halves. First, we'll look at the necessary exhortation regarding sexual sin. 
We need to hear what Scripture says about that. But then secondly, I want to offer a positive encouragement regarding the goodness of marital intimacy. So we're going to do both today, both of these principles that help us flesh out what it means that faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. So first, let's look at this necessary exhortation regarding sexual sin. The commandment says you shall not commit adultery. So we have to ask the question, as we always do, what do the words mean? What is adultery? While there are many things that fall into the category of sexual sin, adultery is a fairly narrow term. It means specifically, one, when a married person engages in sexual sin with someone who is not their spouse. Or, on the flip side, it means when an unmarried person engages in sexual sin with someone who is married, with someone else's spouse. So really, marriage is very much in view here in the Seventh Commandment. The Ten Commandments as a whole began, if you remember, by revealing to us that God's will for his people is exclusive worship, first and foremost. That's the first four commandments. Their covenant relationship with God is supposed to be marked by faithfulness. No other gods. This is exclusivity, devotion, purity of worship. And the seventh commandment shows us that this same kind of loyalty, this same exclusivity, this same faithfulness, it's not just important for worship. It's also necessary in marriage. And why is that? Why is adultery wrong? Well, first of all, the commandment says so. So God has a right to say, just because I told you so. And that should be enough for us. But as we sort of zoom out and look at Scripture we can actually read much more about this kind of sin. And I'd like to share with you this morning, sort of rapidly, six reasons why adultery is sin. And this will take us to various places in Scripture. But first of all, adultery dishonors our Creator. It dishonors our Creator. We see this in Genesis 2, verse 21, that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is Moses now sort of commenting on this story. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What we see here from the very beginning, from this narrative of creation in Genesis 2, is that marriage is God's design. It's God's design. One woman for one man joins together as one flesh. And adultery deviates from this design. It departs from the pattern that God himself instituted in the garden. The first marriage was not in any way random or pointless. It was an authoritative model. The way this first marriage was designed is the way that all marriages are supposed to be. So adultery is a sin against God, the designer of marriage. Joseph knew this. If you remember the story later on in Genesis, when Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph, who was young and sharp, good-looking, and successful, he was rising to the top uh, in his business ventures. Joseph refused her advances, and he said this, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
For Joseph, he knew that. He knew that to commit adultery would be a sin against God, a dishonoring of his maker. King David, following his sin with Bathsheba, pens this amazing psalm of repentance. In Psalm 51, he acknowledges, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Joseph and David knew that adultery is ultimately sin against God. It dishonors our Creator. And the fact that God's design for marriage, including marital intimacy and sexuality, the fact that this design is morally binding has further implications even than just adultery. It's not just adultery that is sinful, but any sexual activity outside of the proper context of biblical marriage, the covenant union of one man and one woman. As Kevin DeYoung comments, there's an internal moral logic that renders every kind of adultery, fornication, bestiality, homosexuality, and prostitution a violation of divine design. He's right. There's this internal moral logic to God's design for marriage that condemns not just adultery, but all kinds of sexual sin. So while these other specific sins are not listed explicitly here in the Ten Commandments, this prohibition does speak to them. In fact, as we study through the rest of God's law in the Old Testament, we find that the case laws, which are sort of the the case-by-case application of the principles found here in the Ten Commandments, those case laws prohibit and outlaw all these other sexual sins. So adultery is wrong, and all sexual sin is wrong, because it dishonors our Creator. It violates His design. But a second reason why adultery is wrong is that it damages the marriage covenant. It damages the marriage covenant. All sexual sins are grievous. But marriage is precious. There's something different. And so adultery is a different kind of a sin. It is a covenant violation. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did not he make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi, verse, or Malachi chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 tells us that this marriage relationship is not just some sort of contract. It's not just a social arrangement. It is a covenant and God himself has a hand in it. Moses writes that they become one flesh. Jesus would later say that what God has joined together, let no man separate. But adultery is a crime against this covenant, and it does damage to this covenant. And here at Sinai, God is telling his his people, Israel, who have gathered here at the mountain, he's telling them that violating the marriage covenant is also a violation of their covenant with him. The fact that adultery violates this covenant helps us to see why this crime was punishable by death in ancient Israel. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now this may seem shocking to some of you. Death? Really? Because adultery is so prevalent in our society. 
from the White House to the trailer park. It's commonly sung about, it's portrayed on film and TV. It's the theme of countless cheap paperbacks. And it touches many people's lives, really. Is the death penalty really the appropriate consequence in Old Testament Israel, within the kingdom of God, in, in, that, in that situation, really, he prescribed death? Yes. Yes. And it's because it's a violation of the covenant. As one insightful pastor comments, certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family, and God hates it. So adultery dishonors our creator but it also damages the marriage covenant. A third reason adultery is wrong is that it disdains our neighbor. All sin hurts other people, and adultery is no exception. When a person commits adultery with someone else's wife, it is a sin against God, and it is a sin against her, but it's also a sin against her husband. When a person commits adultery with someone's husband, it's a sin against his wife. There is a horizontal component to sexual holiness. We are to honor others. Remember, the first half of the Ten Commandments is about honoring God, and the second half is about loving our neighbor. And this commandment of not committing adultery is an important part of loving our neighbor, honoring their marriage. This truth is illustrated in the story of David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David. If you aren't familiar with the story, King David had taken this woman, Bathsheba, and committed adultery with her, and she became pregnant as a result. So David arranged for the death of her husband on the battlefield so that he could marry Bathsheba and cover his tracks. And he thought he had all of his bases covered. But the problem was he served an omniscient God who revealed his word through the prophet to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, Nathan speaks to King David. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. David is incensed by the injustice of this crime against neighbor. And Nathan says, that is exactly what you have done in taking someone else's wife to yourself. You see, David not only sinned against God, but also against Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband. Adultery is wrong because it disdains our neighbor. The fourth reason adultery is wrong is that it disregards wisdom. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, 6, 7, these chapters lay out for us the foolishness of sexual sin and the wisdom of purity and holiness and self-control. I wish we had time to sort of exposit this whole chapter. We'll just sort of briefly touch on a few things. 
But adultery disregards wisdom. We see this in verses 1 through 6, that the initial allure of sexual pleasure in adultery leads eventually to bitterness and death. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Bitterness and death is the end. The author goes on to give us a practical warning that we should avoid sexual sin at all costs. He says, Now, O sons, in verse 7, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verses 20 through 23 show us that there's more than just temporal consequences and regret. Such sin actually leads to divine judgment. Verse 20 says, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. Friends, adultery is a dangerous game. It's foolish. It leads to shame and regret and painful consequences and ultimately divine judgment. Adultery disregards wisdom. Another reason why adultery is wrong is that it actually defiles the body. It defiles the body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says, listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's a temple for the Holy Spirit. And when we sin in this way, we are not just sinning with our body. We are actually sinning against our body. Romans chapter 1 says that those who give themselves to sexual perversion receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. There is a corrosion not just to the soul but to the body that takes place when we engage in sexual sin. It's a defilement of the body. And then a final reason why adultery is wrong is that it distorts the picture of the gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel. And Paul, or Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, 
So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He continues, continues in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Moses here from Genesis 2. And Paul comments this mystery, this union of one flesh, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Christ and the church. The one flesh union of husband and wife points in, in, a, in a profound way to the relationship that Christ has with his church, with his body. That's why Paul draws all these inferences from it. He says, the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ as her head. And the husband is supposed to love his wife sacrificially, laying down his life, because that's how Christ loves the church. But adultery, get this, adultery shatters this image. It distorts the picture of the gospel. When someone commits adultery, instead of honor and affection being displayed between the man and the woman, there is betrayal and deceit. Instead of sacrificial love being demonstrated, it's a selfish pursuit of pleasure. Instead of submission and respect, there is instead a very painful kind of rejection. And instead of devotion, there is faithlessness. It destroys and distorts this picture of the gospel that marriage is supposed to be. So adultery is wrong because it dishonors our creator, it damages the marriage covenant, it disdains our neighbor, it disregards wisdom, it defiles the body, and it distorts the gospel. So in light of all these reasons, you can see that the commandment here in Exodus chapter 20 to never commit adultery, this is more than just some arbitrary rule. And it's more than just sort of a practical tip to help human society function better. No, faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. And this is something that requires a response of obedience by us. If you want to win the battle against sexual sin, if you want to be faithful to God, then that requires a comprehensive effort. It's not enough for us in seeking to honor God in a sexual sense. It's not enough for us to sort of paddle our canoe right to the edge of the waterfall and then try to avoid being swept over the edge. If you want to have victory in this area of life, it means we must fight the battle against sexual sin upstream. And there's several ways we can do this briefly. If you want to obey this commandment and you're serious about winning the battle upstream, then you first of all need to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Before someone sins with their body, they've already sinned in the heart. Sexual sin always begins with sinful desires. We've referred often to the Sermon on the Mount throughout this series where Jesus touches on the law and expands our understanding and application of it. And in Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this would apply just as much to every woman who looks upon a man 
with lustful intent. It is adultery of the heart. This is the seed of sin that ultimately leads to physically acting it out, but it starts in the heart. Lust, which Jesus condemns, is looking with desire and imagining the possibilities. Friends, if we're going to be faithful to God in this arena, it means we must not tolerate this hidden sin of the heart. Nobody at church will see. Your spouse may not know. But God sees and God knows. He sees the heart. And we're commanded to forsake this kind of sinful thinking. It's an important part of guarding our heart. In addition to to having no tolerance for lust in our hearts, to guard our hearts also means we need to beware of emotional entanglements. Again, it's very rare that people just walk out the door one day and say, I'm going to go find somebody and commit adultery. No, it starts with conversations, text messages, lingering, developing a bond emotionally that then later leads to other things. Paul gave very wise counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.1 in terms of how he should relate to other people in the church. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. There's the Mother's Day reference. Um, Older women as mothers. It's probably not the uh, Mother's Day sermon most people would pick. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. In all purity. Paul says there's supposed to be a familial affection within the church. We are to love one another, and this includes the men and the women expressing a right and appropriate kind of love and care and affection for one another. But it's supposed to be a family-type bond, nothing more. We are to avoid any inappropriate kind of attachment to other people. That's why Paul says we're to do this in all purity, that we love one another as family, but it's to be a pure and Christ-honoring kind of love. So we need to guard our hearts, we need to battle against lust, and we need to beware of improper emotional attachments. Not only guarding our heart is going to be an important step for this, but secondly, Scripture calls us to flee temptation. If you want to avoid sexual sin, you must flee temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. We have a great example of this in Genesis 39. We spoke of Joseph earlier. Genesis 39.10, it says, As she, his master's wife, spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. Listen to her. He would not lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. You know, we can try to avoid opportunity. We can try to avoid situations. Sometimes you can't. When those things happen, we must flee. Flee temptation. Don't linger. Don't entertain it. Don't negotiate with it. Don't kick the tires. Flee. Flee. So guard your heart. Flee temptation. And third, we need to make war against the flesh. Make war against the flesh. It's not enough for us to be simply reactive to this kind of temptation. We need to play offense. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Take initiative to seek to grow in strength and resolve and commitment in this area. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Rather than feed our lusts, we're supposed to starve them. Rather than excuse our sin, we must confess it and forsake it. We must wage war against sexual sin. Wage war against the evil desires that reside in our own heart. So faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. And that means we need this necessary exhortation regarding sexual sin. But there's, like I mentioned at the beginning, a second statement that needs to be made as we seek to be faithful in honoring God in this area. We don't only need this necessary exhortation about avoiding sexual sin. We also need, on the flip side, this positive encouragement regarding the gift of marriage. This commandment, like all but two of the Ten Commandments, is in the form of a negative. It tells us what not to do. But we need to understand this morning the profound goodness of this command, the profound goodness of God's law. Part of what it means to believe God's word is not just that we recognize it is true and that it is authoritative, but an important aspect of believing God's word is also embracing the fact that God's word is good and the commandment is good. Just as the prohibition of murder upholds the sanctity of life, so also the prohibition of adultery is meant to uphold and protect something precious, and that's the sanctity of marriage. You know, it would be easy this morning to perhaps unintentionally send the wrong message, to send the message that God is anti-sex, that he frowns upon pleasure, and that the Christian view of human sexuality is only and always negative and restrictive. But that couldn't be further from the truth. A necessary tactic in the war against sexual sin is celebrating the abundant yes of God alongside our obedience to the singular no. Again, we go back to Genesis so often because it teaches us so much about ourselves and the world we live in. If you remember in the garden, there was an invitation to eat from every tree of the garden. There was an abundant provision of blessing and food, both for their nourishment and for their enjoyment. But there was one singular no. You can eat of all the trees in the garden except for one. Similarly, God's design for sexuality is full of many yeses. There is a plethora of, of joyful experiences to be had within the bounds of marriage. There is one single no. Don't engage outside the boundary of this covenant. But Satan's strategy from the beginning has always been to paint God as stingy and as restrictive and as the enemy of your freedom and your fruitfulness. Satan wants to make God look like someone who's not very generous. He wants to paint God as, as someone who's holding you back from the good things in life. But that is a lie from the pit of hell. And scripture blows it out of the water. In fact, we're warned against uh, listening to those who would try to make this negative view of, of life, including marriage and sex, those who would try to make this negative, restrictive view seem like the way of holiness. 1 Timothy 4.3 
Paul warns us against those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Marriage and sex are God's idea. It is his design. He invented it. And they are gifts to be received and treasured with a grateful heart. According to the teaching of Scripture, marital intimacy is to be pursued and cultivated and enjoyed. We see this in Genesis 2, as the man and the woman were naked, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. There was something joyful and exuberant about what God had designed for them to enjoy. We see this in the Old Testament law, as newlyweds, get this, newlyweds were exempt from military duty. Listen to Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Did you get that? God wants newlyweds to be happy and to enjoy the very new blessings of marriage. And he wants all marriages to be happy in this sense. It's a good gift to be cultivated and enjoyed. Perhaps the most extended and famous teaching on this subject comes once again in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We read earlier from Proverbs chapter 5, and you might have noticed I skipped a section. In addition to the warnings and the counsel that he gives on avoiding the danger of sexual sin, Solomon tells his son in verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Part of the point that Solomon makes in in transferring this wisdom to the next generation is that, listen, marital intimacy is good. It is better than adultery. So don't go there when you could have this instead. Cultivate and protect and invest in and enjoy the joys of marital intimacy. This positive encouragement is expanded even further in the Song of Solomon. I think sometimes people who read the Bible for the first time are surprised when they get about halfway through and realize there is an entire book of the Bible that is devoted to a celebration of love and desire and pleasure. For those who are married, we need to hear this chorus that is found in Song of Solomon 5 verse 1, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. It is an unashamed affirmation of the goodness and the joy of what marriage is supposed to be when it's untainted by sin and shame and fear and deceit, when there is trust and love and service, this is how it can be. Receive and enjoy God's gracious gifts with a humble and grateful heart. A holistic view of God's design for sex means not only honoring the boundaries that he has placed, yes, we must do that, but also embracing the goodness of his abundant yeses in marriage. But what about for the unmarried? Because not everyone in here today has a spouse. 
You may feel this morning discouraged or frustrated that God's no to you right now is not balanced by some abundant yes in marriage. See, that's great for the married people, but what about me? What should I do with this truth that sexual intimacy is a good gift from God? I think it's important to those who are single, whether you are not yet married, formerly married, or have never been married. Here are some important truths you must take away from this, that marriage is good and sexual intimacy within marriage is a gift of God. Here's how you need to think about that. First of all, since marital intimacy is a gift, it's a gift, you need to reject the lie that sex is a need. Our culture says that, that this is a human right, that it's a fundamental, biological, emotional need. But that's not true. It is a gift to be enjoyed, but it is not a need. By the way, married people need to believe this too. It is a gift to be received, of which we are to be thankful for, but it is not a need. When we make it a need, we become idolaters. We say, Jesus, I need something other than you to be whole and to be happy which diminishes Christ and his glory. So we need to reject that lie that sex is a need that will help you to be content and to be faithful to God in your singleness. But on the flip side, you also have to reject the lie that sex is bad. I think in, in some ways, those who, who do not have maybe the full experience of this gift, that you might be tempted to say, well, I'm just going to sort of spit on this thing and say it's nothing and it's stupid. That way I don't feel bad about not having it. But this does not honor God. So there's two extremes here. Sex isn't everything. So don't treat it as a need. But it's also a good thing. So do not demean it or diminish it. That doesn't help anything. It actually dishonors God, who is the giver of the gift. So we need to think rightly about it. But secondly, I want to encourage you this morning to believe God's promise that true satisfaction is found in Christ. True satisfaction is found in Christ. The psalmist tells us, that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail. That's the arena in which the joy of marital intimacy is found, the flesh. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you are not able to enjoy the blessing of God's yes in this specific arena, that does not mean that you are going to be deprived of joy or satisfaction. God gives you something better. And he gives you himself. And it is eternal. The best that sexual pleasure has to offer is fleeting. It's temporary. And it's a limited feature of, of our human experience in this current world. But there is an eternal life, an eternal kingdom coming. And there will be something better than sexual pleasure. There will be the unmediated viewing of the very glory of God in the face of Christ. And you will never feel like you've missed out on anything because Christ is better. Believe the promise that satisfaction is found in Christ. And then thirdly, I want to encourage you to uphold the sanctity of marriage as an institution. You may be single. You may not have a spouse. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a part to play in affirming what God says is good and in protecting something that is good for society and something that portrays the gospel you may not be married, but you can still be a champion of God's design who shouts out the goodness of God's will for marriage. This is not only the way of faith, it's a way for you to love your neighbor. 
Perhaps you can find a way to support and bless the marriages of other people. Love your neighbor not only by refusing to sabotage their marriage by committing adultery, but you can also love your neighbor by strengthening and encouraging them in ways that are very much needed. You may not be married, but there is still a way for you to affirm the goodness of God's design and the goodness of his gifts. As you seek joy and satisfaction in Christ, and you honor his will and his way in this world. There's one final category of people, though, that I need to speak to this morning. And it is those who have fallen into sexual sin. Perhaps you have been or are in currently a sinful sexual relationship. Perhaps you are today entangled in the sin of pornography. Perhaps you have a lustful heart. Listen, today God wants you to deal with your sin. He's making it very clear what his will is. Paul tells the Thessalonian church, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The good news for you today, though, is that the gospel offers forgiveness for sexual sinners. There is cleansing and forgiveness at the cross. I will say that again because we need to hear it again. There is cleansing and forgiveness for sexual sinners at the cross. David, who famously sinned sexually with Bathsheba, writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's David's testimony, and it can be yours as well. Do not hide your sin. Do not cover it. Do not excuse it. Confess it. Bring it into the light and lay it at the foot of the cross and receive the forgiving, cleansing grace of Christ in the gospel. Perhaps your sexual sin was decades ago or perhaps it was this last week. Whatever the case, if you have not confessed your sin to God, then do it today. Confess it and forsake it. You might say, it's the confessing part I can do, it's the forsaking part that's hard. And that's true. But we need to hear a second thing that the gospel does. It doesn't just offer us forgiveness. Listen, the gospel also offers freedom to sexual sinners. Perhaps you've tried and failed, tried and failed. And so it's easy to start thinking, there's no hope. And I can never break the hold that this specific sin has in my life. There's a real fear and feeling of defeat that many Christians wrestle with. But listen to God's word. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. If you are a believer today, if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, then this is true for you. Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. If you have died with Christ, if your heart has been united with Christ through faith, if his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection, 
then the Bible says you are free from sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 6.11, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. If you are guilty of sexual sin, whether in the realm of the mind, whether simply with your eyes, or whether with your whole body, God wants you to deal with your sin today. And the gospel offers cleansing and forgiveness for sexual sinners. And it also offers you freedom. If you are willing, then come. Come and be forgiven. Come and experience freedom in Christ. That's something that needs to happen prayerfully right now. As you speak to God and acknowledge the reality of who you are and what has taken place and what you need. And that is also something that the church is able to help you with. This is not a church of people who have a perfect sexual past. There's a lot of rehabilitated sinners in the room. And there's a lot of people still working through it. Don't think you're the only one. And we will help you with this. We will pray for you. We will encourage you. We will hold you accountable. We will counsel you and share God's wisdom with you. So if you want to win, if you want to be free, if you want to enjoy this freedom and walk in purity and holiness, then reach out to God today by faith. Pray to him and confess your sin and believe his promise. And then reach out to what God has provided to help you. Reach out to the church. Come talk to me, Pastor Stephen, your small group leader, a trusted friend. We want to help you. And we will. We will. The seventh commandment tells us that faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. So let's receive both of these truths today that we need this necessary exhortation. Do not commit adultery. But we also need this encouraging truth regarding the goodness of God's gifts. Let's receive it all. Let's seek to walk in obedience and joy as God's people. And let's keep our eyes on the cross, the one who redeems and cleanses and sets free those who have become entangled in sexual sin. Father, our hearts are perhaps heavy. I'm sure it's heavy for many in the room today because this hits close to home for so many of us. There's no one who's perfect in thought. There's no one who's perfectly guarded their eyes. And there are many who have sinned sexually, even with their bodies. But Lord, we come to you today thankful that your word says, such were some of you. But we have been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart, saved, made new, made clean through the atoning work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit applying that grace to our lives. We rejoice today in the gospel and the freedom and forgiveness it offers. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would strengthen our resolve to walk in purity and holiness, that we would guard our hearts, that we would guard our thoughts, that we would guard our eyes, that we would be careful in our relationships with one another, that we would flee from temptation and refuse to sin against you and against our neighbor 
and against our marriage covenant and against our body, that we would refuse to transgress the way of wisdom and refuse to distort the picture of the gospel by sinning sexually. Lord, we know that this sin is something that can rob the joy and the spiritual power from not just a person but a church. I pray, God, that you would purify this church, that you would give us a holy zeal to forsake this kind of sin and to be righteous and holy as you call us to be. And we're so thankful, God, that you don't call us to do this in our own strength, but you promise to supply us the grace that we need. You promise to put your spirit in us who gives us power to say no to the flesh and yes to you. You promise to make a way of escape in every temptation. And you encourage us to help one another, that those who are strong are to help the weak. And at various times, all of us fall into those categories, Lord. So we ask that you would bring about a real revival and a purification in this church, that we would not follow the current of our culture, which normalizes and tolerates sexual sin. And we ask that you would do this, God, not so that we can feel righteous about ourselves and feel better than anyone else. We ask this, God, for your glory, so that your bride, the church, would be pure and spotless and pleasing to you. So we ask for you to do a work in our hearts, and we pray for this in Christ's name and with gratitude for his sacrifice. Amen.